0: Hello, out there, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to The Extra Milestone, your weekly Cinemaholic spin off, where we take a trip into the past to discover uh, the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, as always, Sam Noland, a staff writer for Cinemaholics. And with me, I have, for the very first time, not only on Cinemaholics, not only on The Extra Milestone, but on the art form of podcasts as a whole, I have my good friend of a, of a very long time now, Andrew McMahon. I hope I pronounced that right. Andrew, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks, Sam, for having me. And yes, you did pronounce my name
0: right. <laughs> oh, thank goodness! Yes, I remember you telling me that uh, you you get some weird pronunciations of of your last name. So I'm as as someone who gets a slightly mispronounced name uh, all my life, really. I can sympathize with that. So I'm glad to have gotten it right uh, the first time. <laughs> yeah. But yes, An- Andrew, this is. The extra milestone. How does it feel to be on this on this show that I'm sure you've listened to every episode of?
1: <laughs> well, I haven't listened to every episode. Uh, Shame. I listened to a couple, just because I, I haven't seen nearly as many movies as you have. Uh, so that's
0: that's that's a bit of hyperbole. There, but I, uh, the quantity wise, yes. But your knowledge. Uh, uh, is exceeded by very few that I know, and I don't. I, I do not say that lightly. You're you're one of my favorite uh, reviewers to read on Letterboxd. and the times that I've met you in the, in person have been an absolute delight. And so I'm glad to welcome your knowledge, your wisdom, and your cinematic enthusiasm onto the Extra Milestone at last, uh, Andrew. For the listeners who don't know you, which is most likely all of them, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What What is it that makes uh, Andrew McMahon the cinematic savant that he is?
1: <laughs> well, uh, for me, I've always enjoyed movies since I was a, a young kid. Um, back then, I obviously used to watch them mostly just as entertainment. Um, mm. But by the time I got into uh, the end of my high school years and beginning of my college years, I ah, yes. watched a movie called drive by Nicholas, oh. <laughs> uh, which kind of turned out to be my quote unquote gateway drug into, huh. uh, cinephilia, you could say. Um, Fascinating. and then when I started college, uh, I was just an undeclared liberal arts, uh, major, um, so I took a class on exploitation and cold films my second semester of my first <laughs> year. And I was kind of hooked from there because in that class we'd watch stuff like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, uh, yeah. Freaks from 1932. <laughs> uh, some other wow. obscurities like Rock and Roll High School and some things. Oh, my gosh. Things so okay i was For, i i kind of fell in love right from then and there
0: okay we have to tell the listeners about rock and roll high school we're off on a tangent already rock and roll high school from <laughs> 1979 is a movie about it and if I, I i might be remembering this slightly wrong but it's about a high school that somehow gets involved with the ramones the band
1: yeah <laughs> it's amazing
0: <laughs> and they just sort of show up and sing songs and they, and they wrote some original songs for her right
1: yeah yeah and it's got a uh, PJ Souls who you might That's know right. from Halloween
0: <laughs> oh yes. Oh my gosh. That, that cult class, uh, sounds fantastic. I wish I had, I wish I had been able to, uh, track down that course. Did you, did you ever watch like maniac or something? Cause that seems like, that seems like the kind of thing that would have been taught in that class.
1: Yeah, we didn't watch maniac, unfortunately. Uh, but if I were, uh, if I myself were ever to teach a class on that, yeah, I think yeah. I maybe consider putting maniac on the syllabus because
0: that would that would be on the curriculum yeah maniac is that's fantastic. just like an
1: all-time trash movie for me <laughs>
0: <laughs> i've i've brought up maniac uh, before on the show when i was talking to jason reed about uh, eyes without a face and don't be yeah. surprised if i bring it up again over the course of our conversation today because a certain movie that we're going to talk about uh reminded me of maniac which brings me to mm-hmm. what's on the quote-unquote syllabus for today. So a uh, lovely uh, transition there. Uh, as announced in the show notes of the episode last week, we are uh, we got we got a double header and kind of a weird one at that. We are going to talk about uh, first off Michelangelo Antonioni's *The Passenger* uh, from 1975, forty-five years old been a been a hell of a four and a half decades if, if i do say so myself and then after that we are going to uh round out the show with our b feature michael powell's peeping tom one of the most influential uh and fascinating horror movies and arguably just movies in general of all time i'm very excited andrew what say we uh we get right into the magic
1: yes let's do it
0: i love it all right so as i announced literally less than 30 seconds ago uh we are going to begin with our discussion of michelangelo antonioni's the passenger
2: michelangelo antonioni one of the great film artists of this generation now takes you on a fascinating and spellbinding journey into identity Jack Nicholson is the reporter. Famous, powerful, respected, and a haunted, driven, desperate man. Maria Schneider, the sensual young star of Last Tango in Paris, is the girl who ran with him and for him.
3: What are you running away from?
2: The passenger, a man who's just found a way out. He's changed places with a dead man. We are sure of the doctor's report. Your husband died from heart attack. And he is about to begin an odyssey that will take him into that man's life and fate. Robertson is involved in illegal arms traffic in our country. I just sold five thousand hand grenades, nine hundred rifles, and a great deal of ammunition to some people fighting a secret war in an obscure part of the world. A world that will never look the same again. Let's go.
3: All right!
2: The brilliance of Jack Nicholson. The beauty of Maria Schneider. The vision of Antonioni.
0: To begin with, I think... Uh, it's important a to establish who Michelangelo Antonioni is and also to establish sort of our base of knowledge with this director, because I think uh, I think he, he's certainly an auteur and I think the passenger specifically falls in a succession of movies that is very interesting to trace sort of the trajectory of. Um, So Michelangelo Antonioni, as you may guess from the last name is an Italian director uh, who was sort of groomed on the Italian new wave of the 1940s and 50s uh, and actually uh, got his start w- in within that wave, directing a few shorts, a feature or two, uh, and then started gain- gaining a little momentum in the mid-1950s uh, with a movie called Le Amish, a.k.a. The Girlfriends, uh, which I watched yesterday and uh, was fascinated to find that i wasn't that interested by it have, have you seen leah Andrew?
1: i have not i i have not seen any of his movies prior to la ventura which i think is kind of considered his breakthrough movie as far as i yeah. can tell
0: yeah no you're absolutely right that was his first uh international success a movie called la ventura uh aka the adventure and i think it's at this point when i when you realize and i don't know if you agree with this or not but Antonioni gets significantly more interesting as a filmmaker and storyteller as the movies progress. <laughs> Would you say that there's there's some truth in that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think there is some truth in that. It's interesting because he obviously started off making movies in Italy. Um, mm-hmm. And then he obviously did La Ventura, La Note, um, and La Eclipse, uh, which yes. make up the... Uh, I think the trilogy of um, alienation is it or Mm. modernism
0: Uh, modern alienation. Maybe it's, it's something along those lines. And yeah, is that not the most European sounding trilogy of (laughs) like you've ever heard of? Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's a, it's a trilogy of movies that from what I understand, I actually haven't seen the second two um, are not connected by plot. It's more of like a thematic thing about sort of, Right. struggling and making like just trying to make sense of the, of the modern world as it was emerging in the early 1960s. Uh, and yeah, I, I watched love two ish years ago and I gotta say Same here. it's, it's a pretty movie. It's, it's a, it's a visually exciting movie. I could not tell you much else beside that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I couldn't either at this current point. It's definitely one I need to rewatch. Um, cause that was, I think the second Antonioni movie I watched first, I started hmm. with blow up, um, which I, I wasn't weird. too impressed with initially. And I wasn't huh. very impressed with La Ventura either when I first yeah. watched it. Um, but then, at the beginning of this year, I watched Zabrisky Point, uh, which oh, yes. really made me think of Antonioni in a different way than I had in the past, and made me see a new side of. It.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting that you say that. It was um, I had heard of the movie Zabriskie Point at the beginning of this year, uh, and it wasn't until I saw actually your review of it that I was like, "Oh, I got to keep an eye out for this thing," and. Uh, because it came out in the year 1970. Of course, it came up when I was uh, collecting titles eligible for the extra milestone. Um, and so eventually when the time came and the anniversary was coming up, I was like, why not? I'll give it a watch. And I was really quite impressed by it. Um, now to, to give a little context for how uh, that movie and what we are ultimately going to talk about came about, there was there was one other movie in between uh, that, you know, uh, uh, amazingly artistic trilogy and the sort of the trilogy of American movies that Antonioni made, which yeah. was Red Desert, which I actually watched this morning. That has been on my watch list for a very long time. And that some consider it to be like the fourth in that alienation trilogy because uh, it deals with many of the same themes, from what I understand. And <laughs> I got to tell you, from,
1: is it kind of like a from, bridge between those two different uh three movie runs he had
0: you know it actually kind of is i from from having not really been super fascinated uh with la ventura given all the uh praise i'd heard given to it over the years from various places uh i i went into red desert not really knowing what to expect and i really kind of love that one and it's and i and it's kind of hard to figure out why it's nothing it's not stylistically very different from Ventura, even though it is in color which i think is uh, especially mm-hmm. especially noticeable considering that it's got an incredibly drab color palette something about that idea of alienation and just not being able to find a place in the world to save your life uh, came across so much better in that movie for whatever reason because it's all about the way that industrialization is just sort of encroaching and dare I even say like perverting the the natural world and uh, okay. it, it sort of reminded me of a movie that came out eight years later, which is Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. And if we haven't alienated almost every listener by now, this is going to be the <laughs> thing that does it. Because that is a movie that the way I've always read it is that it's all it's all about sort of the way that uh, this planet, Earth, that we live on has so much to offer. And yet for so long, we've been uh, just not we specifically, but just as a species, we've been so obsessed with sort of altering it and shifting it. And even in as, as recent as the last century as leaving it, abandoning it. And I think that's a movie all about the existential dread that is, that could be found in space. And as I was watching red desert, I was definitely thinking, yeah, Tarkovsky must've loved this movie. Maybe that's why I really loved it, but either way I was, I was a really big fan of red desert. So I think that, um, that's not a bad place to go if you're unsure, if you're sort of if you're sort of unsure on whether or not uh, Antonioni is your jam in the way that he sort of came to be, if you know what I'm speaking, uh, if you know what I'm saying. And then after that came a trio of uh, American or at the very least English language produced films. Now, this started with Blow Up, which you mentioned before. Uh, Now, you mentioned you were in a fan of blow up when you first saw it. So I I take it to mean that that you've uh, changed your tune on it somewhat. Is that true?
1: Yeah, the second viewing I had of it was kind of revelatory for me, Uh, the same way that Zaberski (laughs) point was, I I was able to kind of just vibe with it a lot more, uh, knowing the conclusion beforehand and not really being yeah. frustrated by the elusiveness of the central <laughs> mystery that he sets up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest <laughs> plotted movies I've ever seen in my life. I've, I also watched this one this morning. I have never seen anything like it. It's, it's a, it's a sort of a murder mystery, but it's, it does not play out like any murder mystery you've ever seen by which I mean to say, <laughs> It doesn't get to the murder until the movie's over halfway over. A lot of it is just this character, this photographer (laughs) played by played by David Hemmings, just sort of going about his day, frankly, being kind Mm -hmm. of a dickhead. I wasn't a huge fan of this character, but it's just, it's just, you see like what this guy does from a, like, on a on a on a normal day living in this like lavish studios and going into an, antique stores and buying giant plane propellers for no per, for no particular reason whatsoever. Like that's a plot point that never yeah, really amounts to bored. anything. <laughs> it just feels like buying a propeller because it looked nice. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh that's that's the kind of lifestyle he leads. And then just so happens to uh to while well, while well, taking some uh, photographs of, of these two lovers in this, uh, like this grassy glade or something, realizes that he may have photographed a murder. Now, if that plot sounds familiar, it was remade by Brian De Palma as the movie Blowout, which is one of the great thrillers. Uh, have you seen Blowout? Yeah,
1: Blowout's it's, one of my all time favorites. It could enter my top 10 at any moment, honestly.
0: <laughs> it's really fantastic. Yeah. I, I will say, I think blowout is better than blow up, but, uh, blow Up was just really fascinating <laughs> to watch. Yeah, no, it's, and it's, it's by quite a bit, I might say, uh, cause, cause blow up as, as weird as it is, that kind of works against it at some ways, but it also, it makes for a memorable movie. That's for damn sure. And so mm-hmm. it's, it must've been just this huge left turn from red desert. Cause it's not like there's nothing really intensely existential about blow up. Um, Although it does like it does sort of it does glance in that direction a couple of times. Um, So that Mm -hmm. was interesting to see. And then after that came the movie that we mentioned uh, a couple of times, Zabriskie Point, which is fantastic. I finally watched it. And yeah, you were you were absolutely right. It's really something special. It's really like it quickly became. Uh, one of the defining movies of of like the seventies counterculture in my mind. Uh, one of mm-hmm. three to come out in the year nineteen seventy alone, which I think is very very interesting. That so much of the decade was defined by these early movies that were still coming off of the sixties. There was Zabriskie Point. There was Five Easy Pieces, also with Jack Nicholson, coincidentally enough. Right. Uh, and there's Barbara Loden's Wanda, which I I know which we're is both amazing. huge fans of. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's coming up later this year uh, for for extra milestones. So I cannot wait to talk about that. Um Awesome. Hopefully. Fing- fingers crossed. Uh and yeah, so it was it's it's this huge uh just just kind of epic feeling, really. Just this just this angry or not even really angry, but just sort of not really having the world kind of movie. For the the basic premise is that a student just gets bored one day and hijacks a plane and flies yeah, to the yeah. desert and eventually a building blows up. Mm-hmm. That's It It doesn't get a lot more counterculture than that. And fun fact, it's the same house where the bulk of the action in uh, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind takes place. So that's a yeah, fun little a, connection there.
1: Another movie that you should definitely watch if you haven't,
0: I only just got to that recently and and I'm ashamed of it because that thing is is uh, utterly fascinating. So yeah, a lot of yeah. a lot of good stuff to be found in this time and this place in cinema history. Um Absolutely. But yeah, I at reading up on it, I found out that Zabrisky point while at the time was not the biggest critical hit, nor was it the biggest financial hit. So it was a little bit of a stumbling uh, point for Antonioni. So that's part of the reason why it took a uh, half a decade for his next movie to come out, which is finally, we're getting to it. The passenger released in 1975, another American movie, another, uh, very sort of loosely structured, although there is a, there is a rather discernible plot to be found within it, but just sort of, uh, just this movie about really crumbling under the weight of 1970s on Like, do you think that's a that's a fair assessment to make?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely. I'd say in all of his movies, on plays a big mm-hmm. part, um, and in this one particularly, I think it's kind of about uh, feeling dissatisfied with your occupation um, and not being able to balance that with like your personal life.
0: Yeah, that's a great assessment. I I can't wait to get more into it. Uh, just just a little background, just to set the stage a little bit for what the deal is with the passenger, as Jerry Seinfeld would say. Um, it was a uh, yeah. It was produced in uh, nineteen seventy three to nineteen seventy four, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, who who, who replaced uh, the initial choice. I don't know if you know this, which was Donald Sutherland, and. I'm imagining John Donald Sutherland in this in this role. Wow. It's a really different movie cuz Donald Sutherland is so much more stoic than Jack Nicholson. I don't think he would have I don't think he would have been uh, been able to get sort of the uh what I'm going to jump ahead and call what I perceive to be kind of the pathetic nature of this lead character that we that we uh that we see Jack Nicholson ultimately fulfill. Did did you know that Donald Sutherland was originally cast in the lead?
1: I did not know that. Um that surprised me quite a bit because yeah he does not seem like the natural choice you would want to have for this type of character. Um I think Jack Nicholson fits that mold a lot better than Donald Sutherland would have. So <laughs> probably a good thing that that didn't come to pass.
0: Although if it had come to pass, uh, there is a good chance that the movie might be more acclaimed today because this was fascinating to me for whatever reason, because I think it was the studio or maybe some studio head specifically or something, uh, they owed Jack Nicholson one essentially, uh, for some sort of project that had fallen through. So they just gave him the video rights for whatever reason and be, and Being Jack Nicholson, he decided (laughs) to hoard them for 30 years. It wasn't until like Mm -hmm. the mid 2000s that this got a really substantial release and a real push in the, uh, in the, theatrical and home video market so that's it's so weird to hear about movies like that like you hear about army of shadows and how that was practically right. non-existent here in the u.s for the better part of half a decade or a half mm-hmm. a uh century half a century yeah so strange to think about that i'm like jack nicholson this is this is great why would you <laughs> why would you keep it from us there's no reason to do that oh wait You're Jack Nicholson. I can maybe, maybe I should have, maybe I should have thought twice before inquiring as to the ways (laughs) of Jack.
1: Uh, Maybe he just loved it so much, he just felt like he (laughs) had to keep it to himself.
0: (laughs) I gotta, I gotta keep this sacred so the world doesn't waste it or something like that. That's that's my pathetic Jack Nicholson attempt. That's one I've that's what I've tried to do so many times over the years. I can get it every once in a while. As it turns out, today is not one of those days. Alas, I push still a good attempt. Thank you. Yes. I've got, I've got hundreds of others. (laughs) So I think uh, not being able to do one impression is, is probably not the end of the world. Uh, yes. And, and, uh, uh, co-starring with Jack Nicholson is Maria Schneider, who had just a year or two before been in last tango in Paris with Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turns out this was sort of a spot of contention between her and Antonioni, which was that she was uh, she was supposed to appear in sort of a sort of a raunchy sex scene along the course of the movie. And she had been kind of traumatized by a similar experience on the set of Last Tango in Paris. So at her insistence, Hmm. actually, uh, it was it was toned way down to the point where uh, you watch it basically
1: non-existent
0: basically non-existent. There's like one <laughs> shot and it's at a distant where there's some, yeah. there's some flesh and that's all we get. So, uh, yeah, I think, that's really interesting I think the, though. Yeah. So it's good, good for her for standing up for herself. Um, and, uh, and yeah, she, yeah. she did not have the easiest, uh, personal or professional life. So I'm glad that I'm glad that she at least got this, if that's any respite or consolation. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie competed at Cannes for the the Palme d'Or, lost to a movie I've never heard of, "Chronicle of the Years of Fire" from Algeria. Have you ever heard of that
1: <laughs> movie, Andrew? I have not, uh, but it sounds <laughs> interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where, you, like, you go back way back to uh, like the earliest Academy Awards and you see these all time classic movies that we still like watch and revere today and they, and they lost to like what it lost to how green was my Valley. What even is that? So it's, it's definitely one of those things uh, where evidently they did not have foresight in that way, but there's only so much you can do. Um, And yeah, it was really sort of the getting to the movie itself. Um, The passenger is really, Sort of this culmination, I feel. And again, there are there are mm-hmm. like spots of Antonioni's filmography that I missed, especially a lot of the earlier stuff and some of the stuff in the middle. But uh from what I've seen, which is not insubstantial, there is this is kind of a real uh a real intense culmination of kind of a lot of the things that that he had touched on before. And so I think yeah, that's unless, unless you had the any other guy got to Yeah, I think it's I think it's um a real, a real sort of, I wouldn't call it the best, I think Zabriskie Point edges it out slightly, uh, but I would say it's about on par with Red Desert. This is, this is real, real cream of the crop as far as I'm concerned with what I've seen with Antonioni's filmography.
3: Um, yeah, and what, I would say, say
1: it's probably his most personal movie too. Interesting. From I'm, what I've I'm, seen. I'm.
0: I'm I'm excited to hear about I'm excited to hear about that. So yeah, uh let's 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 lay out a little bit of the plot. So the movie starts it's Jack Nicholson who plays this intensely disgruntled reporter, even more so than you would assume Jack Nicholson playing a reporter would be. Like like the first thing we see him doing is just sort of <laughs> sort of wandering throughout the deserts of Chad, the nation of Chad in Africa, which was yeah. in the midst of a civil war at the time. And we find out is, is trying to track down these rebels, which is trying to interview for like a, like a TV movie in England and is just like, doesn't speak the language and has no idea where he is. And at this point, and I've actually uh, uh, just, just to clarify, I watched this movie like two or so months ago because it happened to be expiring from the criterion channel. I was like, I'll finally give this a watch. Uh, so I actually have seen this twice within a very short span, which was interesting because the first time I, I do not remember being as struck by how kind of unusually funny this movie is. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, uh, yeah. That there's like this weird, uh, almost, I, I hesitate to say screwball comedy, but just the humiliation that Jack Nicholson goes through <laughs> all throughout this movie was kind of a delight to see. Uh, in a way that I was not expecting Like it, for whatever reason it just did not come across The first time and so just right off the bat Seeing Jack Nicholson just sort of like Where the hell am I Just going throughout the desert Getting stuck in the sand In a Land mm-hmm. Rover <laughs> And like whacking the car With a shovel there was something about it that just Struck me as kind of Kind of uh, kind of funny and not in an Empathetic way like I think we're supposed to be laughing At this character Because he's clearly just Sort of just sort of out of his depth, just doesn't really want to be there. Like you could tell that within minutes, you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it's often said that Antonioni's a pretty humorless guy, but I think parts of this movie would at least prove that he does have a sense of humor.
0: And, and that has not consistent with any of the other movies I've seen. So I wonder if it was just Jack Nicholson specifically, maybe just because of this, <laughs> you know, huge, uh, connection that, that, uh, a lot of people now have with him in the years since. And even before, uh, the passenger, the legacy that Jack Nicholson has built up. So just seeing him in this role, uh, was, was, uh, enjoyable inherently. So that may have just added to it, but regardless, um, Eventually finds his way to this to this hotel, uh, and it's at this point we see that Jack Nicholson in this movie uh, plays a reporter named David Locke. Not the uh, not the most empathetic guy, not the nicest guy, not the most uh, not the most reverent for uh, the the place he's in. Like he goes into this hotel. Yeah. And just just downright orders the workers there to like bring him water. No, please. No, thank you. No, anything. And even kind of scoffs at them. Uh, yeah, and then the he uh,
1: takes a shower, and then he's like all disappointed because there's no soap.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and just gives this just just this Jack Nicholson face of "Why I oughta" or something. And it's like, no, yeah. you don't oughta, Jack Nicholson. It's fine. <laughs> there's no reason to be so bad, but Jack Nicholson. Goes back to this hotel, which as it turns out, he had been there some days before and had struck up a sort of a sort of a brief friendship with this uh, self-referred businessman named Robertson, David Robertson, I believe. And they had sort of talked. We find we find out in this flashback that uh, we see Jack Nicholson is in a much more chipper mood than we see him at the beginning of this movie so clearly Mm -hmm. there's been a bit of a downfall you know so i think it's masterful but the way they set up that flashback and this is where the movie really gets started is that jack nicholson goes to see is my friend robertson still here goes into his room and he's lying dead face down on the bed yeah so what a thing what a thing to come across just after trudging through the desert is like and now there's a corpse in the room next to me. Great. And so, <laughs> Jack Nicholson, in in what I can only imagine, uh, is just this just this impassioned impulse, driven by driven by humiliated rage, decides. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna swap identities with this dead guy. And so yeah, begins. Yeah, because they both look
3: the passenger. Similar.
0: They look kind of similar, but I, I find that even funnier in and of itself because what he well, he he like takes a razor blade, switches the the photos Passports. in the passport, which is which are uh, apparently just pasted in there. I think they've upgraded since then, uh, but regardless, is yeah. <laughs> able to pull it off. Goes up to the front desk and says, "Hey, my friend David Locke," in air quotes, actually me is dead, and they're like, "Oh, damn, okay." Like, no questions asked. (laughs) Let's check our booking. (laughs) Yeah. My apologies, Mr. Robertson. And so has successfully pulled off this this hoodwink that would be just impossible today. So on top of that, it's already funny watching it now, just how easy it is to uh, give up your identity, at least at first. The movie sort of spirals into other places later on. But this initial uh, bit of trickery is just so it's just almost comically easy to pull off and then the other thing that i find so hilarious is that it's a movie about jack nicholson pretending to be someone else now i know they look kind of similar but jack nicholson at this point is one of the most uh, recognizable rising stars in all of hollywood he had already done easy rider five easy pieces the king of martin gardens uh, the last detail and Chinatown and the and one flew over the cuckoo's nest came out later this in year. The same year. He's a yeah. he's a huge star. So just the idea of Jack Nicholson impersonating someone else with no real thought to like altering his cadence or his appearance in any way whatsoever that's even funnier to see. Uh, especially just given the persona of Jack Nicholson, there's no other human being on earth like jack nicholson so that is funny to me
1: um yeah and just the fact that it's jack nicholson wanting to kind of disappear from reality <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah because what he does is uh, as he's uh as he's switching the passport photos we have just this just this brilliant bit of editing uh where we see that flashback where we see yeah like, we hear the the audio and in
1: camera of- in shot flashback
0: it's really fantastic. Like it's it's hard to even describe how they pull it off. Uh, it's not like technologically amazing or anything, but it's just I you just don't see movies do things like this that often. Uh, mm-hmm. Where we hear the conversation take taking place, we see a tape recorder going, but then it goes it pans across the room as Jack Nicholson is like hunched over the passport photos, and then. We see that that conversation in the same room take place from days earlier. So it's this it's this real fantastic bit of uh, bit of cinema there. Um, and so then what happens is that Jack Nicholson, having convinced the world, as it turns out, because the news, the news spreads eventually that he's dead is like, OK, I'm this guy now. What am I gonna yeah. do? And so he looks in uh Robertson, the 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 dearly departed Robertson, um, looks inside of his like like schedule or daily plan or whatever and says, Oh, looks like I've gotta be in Munich at this time in this place. Why hmm. not? Let's go for it. Uh heads to Munich. And then he gets a fake mustache. <laughs> yeah gets it which is hilarious because the first time i saw it i thought he actually like grew a mustache i thought several I days too. had passed yeah. <laughs> and so there's this hilarious seed where he's talking on the phone and is sort of itching it and then just takes off the mustache yeah. <laughs> and sticks it on a light and leaves it there so it's this fantastic bit of comedy but yeah so so heads to munich uh, and, and it, it's written in the passport or like on the planner or something number 58. So it goes to open like this little safe that's in the airport somewhere and sees, oh, these are like, these are like weapon schematics. This is the war yeah. I was looking for that I couldn't find because I was shambling around the desert. Like I finally found it. And now I'm impersonating an arms dealer. <laughs>
1: maybe a bit more than he bargained for
0: (laughs) a little bit more than he bargained for even more so than when he was like you know wandering around the desert and stuff and so and it leads to probably the funniest part in the movie even more so than the mustache which is where he's like well damn all right well i guess i'm gonna i guess i gotta go somewhere so he's going like to clear his head or whatever uh and at that point we see that these two guys are following him from the uh from the airport. They go into a church and they're like, hey, Robertson, we were supposed to meet in the airport. What's the deal? He's like, oh, yeah, the airport. Yeah, (laughs) I totally forgot. Like it's this just seeing Jack Nicholson realize like, oh, not only am I am I like suddenly out of nowhere in, in the blink of an eye impersonating an arms dealer. I'm dealing those arms right now. So just seeing Jack Nicholson play it off is something so funny to watch. Um mm-hmm. and uh, and another great and, uh,
1: detail in that scene is at the very end uh when <laughs> the uh, uh African uh arms dealer guy says like give my regards to like Betty or something. And Jack Nicholson's yeah. like, "Who?" and he's like, "Betty." And he's like, "Oh." and he just says this look on his face of like oh yeah that's probably like my wife or something
0: (laughs) yeah or maybe like a code name for someone else as he as as he finds out later it's it's just this hilarious bit uh i think the funniest part of that scene actually is the very end it's after he gives them the gun schematics like giving no real thought to i've just funded a war that i was ostensibly at the very least trying to stop so there's that right there but also they hand him an envelope and he's got a wad of cash now so it's like this it's like this blessing and a curse at the same time he looks at it and goes uh oh, Jesus Christ remembers he's in a church and then <laughs> yeah. goes oh sorry about that like looks up <laughs> at Jesus or what what I assumed to be like a statue of Jesus or something. It was like, my apologies, you know? Yeah. uh,
1: And when the uh, guy hands him the money, he's like, Hey, do you want to like check that? (laughs) He's just like, no, I (laughs) I believe you. It looks right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because they don't know what the guy looks like, so they, for all they know, their arms dealer is just having a really weird day. So it's this it's this wonderful <laughs> yeah. wonderful bit of comedy that just works on a couple of different levels. Uh, I I really like that, and so that's that's sort of what gets the movie going. And from there, uh, we're, we'll be a little bit more vague from from now on. But it turns into sort of this cat and mouse game where, yes, Jack Nicholson wants to, you know like just abandon his former life, which he had no regard for whatsoever as we, as becomes more and more evident throughout the movie, just had no passion for it whatsoever was completely disenfranchised by it. Uh, whether that's taken place over time or it, whether it's just a sudden onset of, I have no, I have nothing really to contribute to this world, whatever the case Couldn't give a damn anymore and just wants to wants to go around the world with this wad of cash I've come into through bizarre circumstance and just sort Mm -hmm. of live it up, which he does do a couple of times, but it's never but it's always followed closely by being chased by the authorities in the form of his uh, co-workers. Uh, One of them like worked with him at the TV station and one of them was his wife they want to track down Robertson in air quotes, the guy that he's impersonating, uh, to, to like figure out, Hey, what happened to like our, my husband and my coworker on the last day of his life. We just want to know. And then they start to realize like, why is he running from us? And it becomes more and more perilous as it goes along. Lots of comedy ensues, lots of tension ensues, a couple of really good car chases, um, one yeah, which contains what you wouldn't it,
1: expect in an Antonioni movie
0: <laughs> not really it, 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 there are there are a lot of like weird incidental bits of action in uh these three american movies though like the the uh the stuff with the plane and the explosion in Zabriskie point there's a couple of uh mm-hmm. Like, you know, bits of bits of uh, real suspense and and tension and blow up. And this is this is no different, but it's it's a lot more forthright about it. And it has this moment, which just makes me laugh out loud. Another hilarious moment where they do this thing where they're being chased by the cops. They get pulled over. Th- it looks like they're about to give up and then just <laughs> as the cops get out of the car, yeah. they're like, let's go and they drive away, which I'll be honest, I have thought about doing that when I got pulled over for no reason, like a couple of times I've been like, what if I did the passenger <laughs> thing where I just like waited for the cop to get out of the car and just rube sped away? Like I know I would be chased down, but it would just be yeah. hilarious to be able to say that I did it. God right. damn it. That moment is is really funny to me, but yeah, it's the whole movie becomes this escape, this attempt to flee from uh, not only this identity that he's come to despise, but also just sort of responsibility in general. So in that way, it's almost like a wish fulfillment movie. You know, we've all had that. We've all had those inclinations. Like, what if I just what if I just drove away? what if I just abandoned everything? Like, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know I certainly have. Um, and I've, I've come close to doing it at certain points. I've got a lot of, I've got some wanderlust in my soul. And so <laughs> I've certainly, I've certainly been tempted to do something kind of like it. And yeah, it really just sort of scratches that itch of what if I did it while also simultaneously realizing that there are like legitimate real world consequences and ramifications to doing that. Not that I've ever, wanted to impersonate an arms dealer but if the opportunity ever came across my lap i would not i would it would not be an instant decision for me i'd be like well you know maybe i could get away with it having seen the passenger i could do i'll not do what jack nicholson does and then i'll get away with it so uh that's just that's that's one small part of the movie i've talked a lot andrew i want to know what is what is something that spoke to you about The Passenger? Because I know you were in love with it immediately, right?
1: Yeah, from the very first time I watched it, I loved this one. Uh, after I watched this after Zaburski Point, um, which I kind of felt was my personal breakthrough with Antonioni. Um, and in this movie, I think you kind of touched on it with there's kind of this universal feeling of like wanting to just kind of run away from your problems that I think to one degree or another, every person in their life has thought about at least once or twice, um, hmm. which I think differentiates it from some of his other films, which seem yeah. a lot more specifically tied to the Malou or the uh, profession of the character, like, and uh, blow up the photographer. Um, yeah, just yeah. being bored kind of for no reason. I feel like mm-hmm. with this one and Jack Nicholson's character, it's really easy to relate and identify with him, which I don't always feel the most connected to when it comes to Antonioni protagonists.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. That, that's very interesting that you say that. And I was also thinking about this in relation to with uh some of his other work specifically Zabruski Point which we've mentioned a lot but they're actually they're quite similar when you think about it they're both about uh these characters sort of having enough with uh whether their own lives or just the world around them and they just sort of go off and and just just to see what the what the horizon holds so to speak um but this movie the passenger has uh, has such has a much more doomed feeling to it. And I think that's not only because of just the very yeah. specific incidents. Very fatalistic. It. It's very fatalistic. Yeah. And and both movies are, but in, but in different ways, I feel like with the passenger, you have sort of this, all this incident with like the, uh, getting involved in actual world politics and stuff and how it you can't just, you can't just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. You can't just tap out of that. Really, not just not on a dime at the very least, like especially yeah. uh, when you're already uh, sort of entrenched in it. And I think it also part of that has to do with the ages of the character. Jack Nicholson, uh, not an old man in this by any means, but he's certainly older, like mid 30s. I want to say uh, something along that the mm-hmm. the characters in Zabriskie Point are young. They're college students. They have the whole world ahead of them. They're yeah, not, they're like they're 20. Not a, they're not abandoning much to speak of. So I think it's very interesting uh, to compare these two movies and see how they relate when it comes to that inclination to leave, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I thought that was very, I thought that was very fascinating and to see how they paralleled in that way.
1: Um, Yeah. And they're also, I think think both sneakily political movies, although uh not in the most obvious ways, just because he's Antonioni.
0: Yeah, what, 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 uh, what uh, about the, the passenger speaks to that? Because I, I, I thought the same thing as well.
1: Um, well, there's this interesting thread in uh, Jack Nicholson's character where you kind of see old recordings of his work when he actually was a yes. reporter. Um, yeah. And there's this one scene where his wife is watching him interview uh, who we're led to believe is like the dictator of Chad. Um, and he's mm-hmm. just asking him these very simple, uh, uh, questions, trying to be, we can tell objective as he can be, um, yeah. not really trying to force the issue or anything, even though afterwards his wife says something to him, like, why didn't you like try to, uh, say anything, uh, that would go against him or, uh, challenge his, uh, point of view, and Jack Nicholson's yeah. like, well, those are the rules of like objective reporting. Um, mm-hmm. So he kind of feels like, I think, trapped um, by his profession in that way. Um, and then later, there's another scene where you see him interview a witch doctor um, yeah. where he asks him a very Eurocentric and I would say condescending question when oh, he's yeah. like, um, So I've heard that you've traveled to like France and a few other European countries, but now you've come back here. Do you feel that the local practices of the village are now like less uh, advanced or civilized than what you've come to be used to? And Mm -hmm. the witch doctor has this really interesting response where he basically tells Locke that there are answers to all of the questions you have, but at the end of the day, the questions uh, say more about you than I could tell you the answers to them. Um, And then the witch doctor actually turns the camera around onto Locke um, Mm -hmm. and tries to like, then become the interviewer asking Locke, questions um so there's more of a dialogue and it's not just like a one-way street so to speak um and then we see of course jack nicholson a few seconds after that turns the camera off because he can't really take that um which i think kind of speaks to how his character can't really see um outside of himself and his own Uh biases um which i think kind of ends up being his downfall uh yeah uh not to get all spoilery but as we said it's very fatalistic he doesn't it's not the the least it's
0: not the least predictable ending ever but yes it doesn't it doesn't work out that great um, I think that's fair to say, I think that's, I think that's fascinating that you bring that up. I was going to bring up the same scene and the most ironic thing of it all, as you, as you, uh, alluded to is that it's this, it's clearly something Jack Nicholson needs to hear. He clearly does not have, not have much regard for other cultures, uh, or, or at the very least this specific culture that he's, uh, tasked to, um, sort of document and stuff. Mm-hmm it's something that he needs to hear and he doesn't hear it. Like he's completely called out and just sort of says like, well, hell, but then gives no thought to it. Cause we see later in the movie still doesn't really care for others. There's, there's a, there's a scene and this is consistent throughout the entire thing where there's a scene where like, uh, just as he's leaving the airport in Munich, it was, it's, th- it's this really fast moment, but I think it speaks a lot to, uh, just how kind of callous he is at heart, uh, where he, he damn near runs down like a horse drawn carriage. Like to the point where the, (laughs) the, the coachman is like, slow down there, buster. And so that's just, it's this little detail that just speaks to how much this character has to learn and how little he's willing to learn it. I think that's, it's, it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the scene that really unlocks the whole movie. I think there's, um, we've talked about a lot before. I want to make sure we get to um, I want to make sure we get to Maria Schneider who plays uh, this college student who he runs into in Barcelona and sort of gets uh, swept up into his, into his irresponsible escapades uh, just because of how Mm -hmm. exciting they are. And I really like what she brings to this movie, especially uh, now knowing like, you know, what, all was going on behind the scenes and stuff. And I want to know very specifically, it reminded me of one movie in particular. Uh, maybe it's because I talked about it recently on this very show. Did you get a breathless vibe from this character?
1: Uh, yeah, actually I kind of (laughs) did. Um, and then especially Uh with like the very last scene, um, when Mm -hmm. both Locke's wife and her are asked a question and they both respond different ways, uh, very similar to the ending of breathless with a uh, Jean Seberg trying to understand what the uh, French policeman is telling her.
0: Yeah, that's it's, it's a uh, very reminiscent of that. The whole movie kind of reminded me of breathless and I would be, I would be very surprised if that, if that was not uh, some sort of an influence on this movie conscious or otherwise, especially given uh, just how influential that movie was 15 years earlier. Um, Yeah, and it
1: also uh, kind of sets up a contrast between their two characters, I think. um, Because once Locke has uh, stopped trying to make these appointments and kind of is just trying to live out his fantasy as this other person in Barcelona, but then, of course, everyone starts looking for him. That's at the point where he finds Maria Schneider's character. And Mm -hmm. um, from there it's kind of this weird uh, interesting thing where he doesn't really want to keep uh, making the appointments uh, that Robertson was supposed to be keeping, but Maria Schneider kind of encourages him to do that um, because there's this other scene where um, I think she says something to the effect of uh, Robertson believed in what he was doing, um, which I think is also a, very sly critique at Locke, um, and how before when he was a reporter, he, he didn't really have any passion for the work that he was doing. He was just kind of going about it, uh, without really considering how his work could impact the people that he was making these documentaries on.
0: Yeah. That, that, that's very fascinating that you say that there's this sort of, there's this confrontational element to a character, um, which I think Jack Nicholson is clearly trying to just shrug off, but also I feel like he kind of knows that she's right, but is just trying to keep, just keeps trying to deny it um, to the point where, when the movie ultimately reaches its conclusion, which we've alluded to several times there, there's just, there's this matter of factness about it that the, uh, the other two characters um Maria Schneider, who doesn't get a name, if memory serves, uh, and his wife. uh, Yeah, she's
2: just
1: credited as girl in the credits.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is which, weirdly (laughs) enough, is exactly the same thing with uh, Rebecca, the lead character played by Joan Fontaine doesn't get a name. It's like it's not that hard, filmmakers. It makes it a lot (laughs) easier to talk about the movies if you just give the characters a name. But also uh, it does it does somewhat serve a purpose in some strange way i still yeah. think and i still think a name isn't too much to ask but regardless uh that's what we ended <laughs> up with but yeah there's this frankness that they that these other two characters look at this entire situation with that i that i think is really is really indelible and it leaves the movie on really sort of really melancholy note that is is strange that it hits so hard especially after all the all the strange uh, conflicting or not conflicting. That's the wrong words, but just sort of uh, contrasting tones we've seen throughout it. Like it'll go from really suspenseful to really funny to just really sort of, sort of benign. Like there'll be uh, entire sequences where they're just sort of like hanging out at a roadside cafe or like at this luxurious, like country Mm -hmm. club looking thing in Barcelona, which is uh, I got to, I got to draw attention to the visuals here in this movie, which are, uh, really quite fantastic. There's, there's, I'm, I'm a sucker for landscape shots and this movie's got tons of them. Um,
1: yeah, as almost as, every single shot, the frame is just packed with something yeah. in the background, whether it's like natural landscape or architecture.
0: And even if it is architecture, it's, it's, it's really, uh, beautiful to look at. It's, uh, a lot of fascinating stuff in this movie. I am, a really huge fan of it. I uh, liked it even more the second time. Uh, and I expect that'll only continue to grow. Andrew, I know you were a huge fan of it to begin with. I want to know, is there anything, uh, about the passenger that we haven't touched on yet? Because I feel like we got to a lot, but by all means, if there's anything, um,
1: yeah, I think we covered most of, uh, the movie without delving into spoilers. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up briefly though, um, is that, the original title of this movie, at least in Europe, is actually uh, Profession Reporter, um, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting title. Uh, I do yeah. like the passenger title because that's kind of, it goes more metaphorical. But the Profession yeah. Reporter one is interesting, I think, um, because I think it kind of speaks to how Antonioni sees himself as a filmmaker. Um, he sees himself as a reporter, I think, more than anything, um, but I think he differs from the David Locke character in that David Locke really uh, can't see anything from his like own subjective point of view, and he's stuck in trying to be an objective journalist in a world that's completely non-objective. Um, I think Antonioni, on the other hand, uh, really is able to imbue his films with a certain philosophical point of view that reflects his worldview. Um, and I think that's where uh, Antonioni, of course, uh, started his career more, I think, with, uh, in line with the neorealist uh, school of thought that was coming out of Italy. But he obviously departed and kind of uh, created his own more, I'd say, symbolic, metaphorical style. Um, And Antonioni, I found this quote uh, about him talking about his films, which I thought is kind of really a perfect way to sum them up, which is he said, My work is like digging. It's archaeological research among the arid materials of our times. That's how I understand my first films, and that's what I'm still doing. And that's from an Esquire interview in 1970. Um, wow. So, and I think uh that the very end of this movie, you do kind of get the sense that Antonioni is diverging from Locke's point of view on all that has happened in the movie. And um, he's not really giving in to what Locke has kind of doomed himself uh, to resign in uh, by not using, or I'm sorry, by moving the camera away from him um, and kind of getting a look at all of the other things going on, which is a motif that recurs obviously throughout his films. You'll see in other one of his movies where he'll be following a character and then, something else will come in the way and his camera will just kind of go off and follow that other thing and then Mm -hmm. re-land on the character. Um, So it's kind of this interesting thing of he's really interested in people, I think, but he's also maybe just as, if not more interested in the surroundings of the natural landscapes, obviously, but also just like the architecture. Um, so I just think he has a really interesting point of view to offer that I haven't seen in a lot of other filmmakers work.
0: You are so right. That, that is a lot of fascinating stuff you brought up there. I love what you said about, uh, the way he's fascinated with people. I would take it one step further. He's sit I would say he's, he's more fascinated with how people navigate the world around them, which I know is kind of a, a vague generic thing to say. Um, but this really like kind of clicked in my mind when i watched red desert this morning where which is uh, again about sort of just the just the crazy what's the word i'm looking for just surge in uh, industrialization in in the past you know couple of centuries and maybe even less than that it's cuz it's it got me to thinking it's like this it's kind of like this thing of it's kind of like this uh, what's the word i'm looking for it's kind of like this cultural whiplash you know what i'm saying like you read history from like centuries yeah. ago where it took thousands and thousands of years just to get from bronze to like iron you know what i'm saying and so just in just since like the 18th century the the insane advances in technology has got to be like evolutionary existentially troubling to a lot of people we see that a lot where some people take to uh all this uh, all this change so easily and yet and some people just cannot find their way in it whatsoever and I think that's something that Antonioni was very keyed into I mean you even look at like technology from the year 1999 when I was born it looks like cavemen stuff by today's standards so right <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy to think the exponential way that that humanity has evolved uh, in, in the grand scheme of things at the very least so that's a lot of fascinating stuff. I would love nothing more than, than just to talk about, uh, (laughs) than just to talk about Antonioni and this movie scene by scene for hours. Um, but there are, there are a lot of fascinating things to be found in this movie. And I think the one thing I would, I would like to leave this conversation at is that as much as we've sort of given like a really kind of broad overview of, uh, Michelangelo's career, um, I would say, do do not be afraid to start with The Passenger. Would you, would you say that's a fair thing to say?
1: Yeah, I would actually, of the ones that I've seen, I would say The Passenger might just be the best one to start with. Because um, like I said, I started with Blow Up. Um, mm. But personally, I did find Blow Up to be pretty alienating just because its character, uh, its main character, as you alluded to, is kind of just like this not very good person who doesn't really have a lot going on uh jack nicholson not that his character in the passenger (laughs) is that much better of a person necessarily yeah Um, but i feel like jack nicholson just as a movie star and as a presence is able to kind of ground that character in this very universal emotion that's easy to identify with and relate to
0: and it also it helps that it takes place in a little bit more of a recognizable milieu. Again, uh, stuff like blow up. There's I, there. It's such a strangely conceived and presented movie. Uh, and the earlier stuff, the uh, before Antonioni transitioned to color, uh, that's way more like avant garde and stuff. And if you're into that, then I have no. Like I I have no reason to doubt that you'll probably dig it, but uh, stuff like Zabriskie Point and The Passenger, and I'd even throw Red Desert in there. That's a lot more recognizable as sort of that, sort of that '60s transitioning into the '70s existential minefield kind of stuff. You know, your easy riders again, your five easy pieces uh, to go back to Jack Nicholson lots of really great movies like that i'm glad that uh we got to talk about a good few of them today and i'm really glad we got to talk about the passenger so i think if that is everything then we can move on to our b feature what do you say
3: yeah
1: let's do it
0: awesome so as stated in the beginning of the show and most likely in the title of the episode you're listening to no reason to belabor it it is michael powell's peeping tom
3: look out look out look out look out Take care, you are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Burns as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. (laughs) It's no good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Someone coming towards you who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences
2: madman
3: yes take it away mark anna massey is the girl who falls victim to the charms of the lonely stranger upstairs Switch it off mark mark switch it off maxine audley as the blind woman who senses the danger that threatens her and her daughter but is helpless don't be frightened not frightened what? So put that camera away! There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene.
0: Andrew, I want to ask you right off the bat, what is uh, what, what is your familiarity with uh, writer-director Michael Powell?
1: Uh, Michael Powell, I'm actually not that familiar with. I, mm. of course, know of him because in the 40s and 50s, he made what are considered to be probably some of the best British films from that period with uh, yes. his filmmaking partner, Pressburger. Um, yes whose first name I unfortunately don't know.
0: (laughs) It's uh, Emmerich Pressburger.
1: Emmerich Pressburger, yeah. Um, I've heard great things about all those movies. Uh, They've been on my watch list forever. I just have never gotten around to them. But judging by peeping Tom, I would say I'm probably in store for a really good time with most of his other work.
0: You know, it's strange that you say that because... Uh, I am not an expert by any means, but I have seen a, a small handful of Powell and Pressburger's movies. Uh, I have seen, uh, what have I seen? I've seen The Red Shoes, which is which is quite good. Um, what else? Oh, what was the other one? I've seen A Canterbury Tale, which I can't, I don't particularly remember, but I remember it being good. And I've seen <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, aka A Matter of Life and Death, which is really fantastic. But none of those have have like anything uh, especially notable in common with Peeping Tom. Now, part of that potentially is because Peeping Tom was a, a solo venture for Michael Powell. The only real similarities I can spot uh, are not in the subject matter, but more just in sort of a general aesthetic of it. It looks the same as a lot of those other movies I've seen. But yeah, there, some, some of the other ones uh, that I've yet to get to are uh oh what's it called the one in the convent uh black oh, narcissist that's the one yes I couldn't I couldn't remember in the title <laughs> I just kept I could just kept thinking the word convent I'm like that can't be it. <laughs> that can't be the title of the movie yeah black narcissist and uh there's another one oh yeah uh, the life and death of Colonel blimp and 47th parallel various other ones they had a quite a long and successful career um. Which is a shame when I learned that Peeping Tom sort of functionally torpedoed Michael Powell's career and by extension uh, Emmerich Pressburger's, which is even a bigger shame because I'm just going to jump right to it. Peeping Tom is kind of awesome.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, I would say it's it's probably up there with Psycho as far as 1960 horror thriller movies go that have been extremely influential.
0: There yeah, there was that, there was Psycho, and there was Eyes Without a Face, which I also talked about with Jason Reed. All three yeah. released in nineteen sixty. What a year to be a to be a blossoming horror fan. I can only imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so to so again to give a little context on this one, uh Peeping Tom uh, was written by uh, writer Leo Marx, who sort of cited this, cited this movie as sort of an amalgamation of a lot of experiences that he had had across his life. Uh, everything from like neighborhoods that he had, uh, that he had been in witness of to like, you know, scientific uh, uh, discoveries that sure. he had read about lots of stuff like that was sort of compiled together into this story about a uh, for lack of a better word, a, a serial killer, a, a murderer, a violator of the fifth commandment, however you want to say it. That's what that's, that was this guy's deal. Um, it is about to, to, to set the stage. It is about a photographer uh, who works at a bookstore who moonlights as like a as like a technician on a film set. Uh, played by, I got the name right here, played by Karl Heinz Böhm, a German actor. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. First thing we see in the movie is what is very clearly like a camera being turned on. We're seeing through the lens of the camera as it goes up to uh, a woman on the street who turns out to be a prostitute, follows her back to her uh, apartment. And then through some means that we don't see at first, she's killed. And we see the investigation going on the next day and the same guy who committed the murders who we see later on that night rewatching back the footage. So really struck yeah. away to the way to beginning is sort of masquerading as a reporter. Like someone says, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm uh, taking pictures for, for the uh, murder that happened. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and he asks him like, "What newspaper or magazine are you from?" And he says something where I feel like he's just making up some name on the spot.
0: <laughs> oh, it, it's especially funny. The name he comes up with, very fitting, the Observer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very fitting. <laughs> just a vague newspaper name that also happens to sort of to sort of be uh, uh, to sort of tie into uh, a lot of what this movie is getting at. It's kind of this is what I was alluding to earlier when I said I was gonna bring up Maniac. That's the movie this reminded me of a lot, where it's just sort of taking you to the in inside the mind of a killer and leaving you there by yourself, abandoning you in this desolate landscape, and just mm-hmm. just just like this full-bore experience of what does this person go through on a daily basis? Now, obvi- the tone is very different, obviously. Uh, so, but, but, yeah. although it'd be fascinating, it'd be a fascinating double very, feature with Maniac.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. One, one trash classic, and one more, a little classier. I would say.
0: <laughs> I would say so as well. Yes, it's uh, it's certainly got an air of class to it, even though there's a lot of a lot of stuff that this movie really had a lot of trouble getting past the censors to the mm-hmm. point where I, I found this fascinating. It was it was released in April of 1960 and got pulled from theaters after five days because there was such an uproarious response to all the graphic content in this movie. And I'm watching it Even and though I'm thinking there's
1: no graphic content,
0: <laughs> not especially at least not by today's standards like nothing. I I, I wouldn't say any of it is worse than anything like in psycho or anything i think eyes without a face yeah, yeah. is more gruesome than this by a long shot it's just all I'm suggested it's it's suggestive and it's and granted it's very suggestive uh if you've seen a lot of other things from the time which is the production code is still going on granted it was a little bit different over in uh england but there was still there was still something <laughs> of a guideline for this kind of thing Uh, it got more lenient as time goes on. Like you would never see anything even remotely like this in the thirties or forties or even the fifties, but even still, I'm watching this. I'm thinking, obviously this is, uh, more suggestive than most for the time. If this movie came out today, like exactly as it is, uh, just with, you know, updated technology or whatever, no one would give it a second thought. Like it would just be, yeah, it would just be all tame. It wouldn't even it wouldn't feel like a big deal. It would feel tame if someone was getting really upset about it. But uh, there there might be like a few articles about how like, you know, uh, protesters throw rocks at the screen or something like that. Um, <laughs> that was that. that's a random story that Louis Spoonwell told about in Shan Andalou. We are a lot of deep cuts in this episode. <laughs> I, I, I hope our listeners enjoy it. But yeah, so the, so uh, getting back to the plot of the movie, that is basically what we see is this uh, killer's modus operandi, and as we find out, he is not an especially like like uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Not especially evocative of a serial killer. This man, you know what I'm saying? Like he's just sort of he's kind of shy, he's kind of timid, but you would never you wouldn't assume at first. That like this, this man is a cold blooded killer or anything like that. So that's, uh, yeah,
1: he just seems like a socially awkward guy who's just mm -hmm. kind of a loner.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Which I mean, listen, that's uh, uh, certainly there are a lot of stories to be told about that. And this reminded me, uh, very specifically of a movie that I just happened to watch recently, uh, which I'll get to in a minute. But yeah, I want to know, Andrew, getting a, a little bit more specific, what is your uh, connection to this movie, which I had not seen before today. So this is, I have no real oh, story wow. to go along with it. Yeah, I just, I just <laughs> finished it a few hours ago. So I'm coming off of this pretty fresh, uh, but I understand that you have a bit more of a storied connection with it.
1: Oh uh, yeah. So I think I, if I remember right, I learned about this movie weirdly enough in actually a film class on 1970s new Hollywood cinema um, because I think yeah we were uh, we did at The Exorcist for like an entire week um, and if I remember correctly we had to do a reading on specifically Peeping Tom um, just to try to understand how important Peeping Tom was to the development of horror um huh. at least modern horror kind of from like 1960 onward um yeah. but i we actually didn't watch the film in that class uh kind of understandably because that was for new hollywood obviously <laughs> peeping tom isn't a new hollywood film um but I, I remember learning about it then and then i think uh right toward the end of when i was about to graduate i think like my last semester i gave it a watch um, one night um, just for fun and actually the first time I watched it I think I was just in a bad mood or something because oh, I really? remember really not being that into it um, hmm. I appreciated all of like the technical stuff and thematically I pretty much got everything it was trying to get across it was just like from a plot slash story point of view it didn't really do it for me that first time But I think uh, I was just like in a bad mood or something because I rewatched it like about a year ago, I want to say. And I completely was like it was like watching the movie for the first time again. Um, And I was like, okay, I can understand why a lot of people consider this to be one of the first modern masterpieces of horror.
0: Yeah, it really is a progenitor of a lot of things. That's fascinating that it was that it was uh paired with the exorcist though. That is not I would I would assume maybe Halloween. Like that would be one of the movies that I would think. You could see a lot of the DNA for stuff like Halloween in this movie. Uh a lot of yeah, the Jalo, yeah. lots of a lot slasher of sh- stuff. Lots of slasher stuff, a lot of a lot of Jalo influences in here. Um Definitely, which uh, I also just bringing up that episode again, I got to talk about Deep Red with uh, Jason Reed a few weeks ago. So that was a lot of fun. And yeah, I could (laughs) I could getting to go back and see this before I was like, oh, wow. So it goes back even further than that, Uh, which obviously I knew, but I just had never seen it with my own eyes. Uh, So that was really fascinating to see. Specifically, uh, I think Halloween owes a huge debt in that it opens with like that POV shot, you know, that's exactly like John Carpenter's Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of, yeah. Other things as far throughout. as I know, I have not seen a film earlier than
1: peeping Tom that uses a point of view shot, like behind the camera, like the way it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there are any others, I'm sure it's, I'm sure someone did it, but not, uh, not uh, nearly as notably as this, I would assume. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's out there, but we don't know. Uh, but regardless, yeah, it was, um, so the movie came out 1960 and, uh, again, had, had, had a mixed reaction at best. A lot of critics were just really, just really harsh to it. Someone said it belonged in like a sewer and that it should just be disposed <laughs> of and forgot about completely. And the tide had turned as early as the 1970s. So just yet another example of how time is the only real critic that matters. Uh, and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't until the late 70s when uh, Martin Scorsese, you you may have heard of him, happened upon uh, <laughs> happened upon the movie via a friend who had somehow gotten a hold of a copy, which had uh, been largely, largely banned or excommunicated from all sources of uh, history and stuff and sort of uh, went out of his way to really boost the popularity. So. Thanks for that, Marty. Like, no kidding. That was really, that was really something quite good you did there. Uh, uh, Martin Scorsese has always been a huge proponent of letting the world see movies that it might not have seen otherwise. So I'm always, always, always thankful for that. And yeah, it's this, it's this really uh, unusually told by modern standards, I, I, I think is, I think is fair to say, just sort of journey of seeing this character like just sort of just sort of what he does on a daily basis and how there's this one time that it's different again it's uh, uh mark lewis is the character's name the photographer lives in like the penthouse of a building that belonged to his father uh yeah so who who is he's who just is-
1: renting it to people
0: He's renting it under, but under the guise of also being a tenant. To the point where someone's yeah. like, "Oh, you live here too?" He's like, "No, I'm your landlord." So how about yeah? That? And they're
1: like, "Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah." He he meets uh he meets this woman who lives there uh what's her name uh Helen Helen uh played by Anna Massey and uh they strike up a relationship also again like Maniac where they're sort of kind of out of the blue they're starting to develop this like healthy relationship that just might be the thing that uh saves them but there's always this there's this air of impending tragedy around the whole thing that something is just going to go horribly wrong uh and yeah we see multiple, Absolutely. we see multiple uh kills get taken place uh the the second one is where the movie really gets going which is where they're in this recording studio, um, and uh, Mark has convinced this uh, stand-in on the set, this like uh, this body double, essentially Vivian, played by Mo- Moira Shearer from The Red Shoes. So nice little connection there. Uh, says like, "Hey, let's film something by ourselves tonight. Let's let's stay after they, you know, uh, shut off all the lights and everyone leaves, and they start they start doing this like." little dance number or everything, but there's also this really ominous music going around and, and it goes on, like it really ratchets up the suspense. Cause you know, it's just that shoe is going to drop eventually. And it's going to go from, uh, potentially just something really, uh, exciting and youthful and energetic to something completely horrific. And, you know, it reminded me of, you know, those videos on YouTube that you see that are like so-and-so movie, but edited in just such a way that it looks like a completely different genre, you know, like frozen as an action movie or something just off the top of my head, you know, those videos.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I, I thought like, I'll, I'll bet someone could take this scene of them just dancing and frolicking around in the soundstage late at night and make it seem like a really exciting romantic comedy instead of this, instead of this really dreadful scene building up to a gruesome kill in which eventually Mark decides, all right, I'm going to do it, sets up this, uh, sets up this like trap for for uh for Vivian, essentially, and says, all right, now you stand here and then unveils the murder weapon, which is the front leg of the tripod fully extended outwards, which is which is hiding a knife. There's a hidden knife in the tripod pointing directly mm-hmm. outward. Now, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to understand the metaphor <laughs> going on there. Where it's it's literally like they they're not even shy about it it's really obvious that it's it's as if the camera literally has an erection like it's this huge phallic thing that's being used uh because he, any he, and he only yeah. kills women so that is that is certainly uh, not something to be ignored. It reminded me a lot of this movie I watched recently on the Criterion Channel uh, that I had never heard of before <laughs> called the Sniper, which is about a character very much like we see like the lead character we see in uh, in Peeping Tom this sort of socially awkward character um who is essentially uh, c- was kind of one of the first examples that I can think of at least of like the uh, f- for lack of a better word of the incel um uh, uh, archetype which just right. for whatever reason ha- feels utterly uh, inferior and 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 doomed romantically and stuff like that. And so this guy has gotten a hold of a gun and just assassinates women from rooftops and feels great remorse about it. Like, like is writing notes to the police like, stop me now, uh, and yet is a monster through and through. And it's just this movie of trying to figure out what do we do? What can we do? It's a really fascinating movie and it plays... Are possibly even more interestingly today than it did back in uh, 1955. So it even predates Peeping Tom. So that's another that's another double feature I'd love to do. Um,
1: yeah, I'll have to check that one out.
0: It's really great. I, do, I I I can't imagine it's the easiest to find, but if you can track it down, uh, the sniper is uh, it d- deserves a resurgence. If I'm calling okay. the shots, but yeah, it's this it's it's a character you can kind of you can kind of suss out like what uh what the deal is with this character just from our description now andrew i want to know what is it uh again about this movie that really compelled you especially that second time around
1: um actually the second time i found myself actually sympathizing with him a lot more as weird as that may seem uh Mm. to sound uh because while he is going around and uh Doing these horrible things um he also comes from this traumatic past um yeah. which he reveals in this one scene pretty early on when helen comes up to uh his room where he's got all his uh camera equipment and projector and stuff and he puts on an old film of him uh from when he was a kid at which point we learned that his father was a uh some kind of scientist guy who was obsessed with Uh, the idea of fear and figuring out what provokes fear and how the person feeling fear uh, it it relates to that. Um, So we see him as a Mark as a kid and uh, his father is just doing some really mean things like putting a lizard on his bed in the middle of the night. Yeah,
0: that gave me the real that really gave me the willies. Like I have a fear of just creatures. And so seeing that lizard just like wriggling around and stuff, it was, it's really terrifying. So you could see how to, to a kid that would be uh, really traumatizing and God knows what else was going on uh, when the camera wasn't on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you see, like, uh, his father has him come, like, uh, put his hand by, like, his dead mother, where we're led to assume she's dead at that point. So it gets yeah. really dark. Um, and the Mark character, he is obviously dealing with this kind of childhood trauma um, that it seems like has stunted his development when it comes to interacting just normally with people. Um, And I think that's kind of led to this uh, weird perverted sexual pleasure he gets out of uh, filming other people while they're dying, Um, which is why he's uh, the title is called peeping Tom because he's obviously recording them through his camera as he's killing them, which just makes it that much more darker. And I think the reason why, Uh, this movie when it first came out was uh, so universally reviled by critics was because um, they didn't want to see uh, how much they could actually see of themselves in uh, Mark Lewis, um, either as like film critics who watch films a lot or just as like fellow filmmakers um, who whether you want to admit it or not there is a sort of perverse uh, visual pleasure that goes along with being someone who's an avid watcher of films.
0: Yeah, that that's very interesting and I think you're getting into the real the real meat of this movie. I think I want to I want to touch on one thing you said real fast which is a uh, very interesting word choice uh that you used just now of, of the sexual thrill he gets. see. I didn't necessarily get a thrill. I got it almost like this, like this penance that sort of like, like he just feels compelled to do it, you know? Okay. As, as if he has, as if he has no other choice, you know what I'm saying? Like, I never got this, I never got this idea that he was like, you know, cackling maniacally, like, yes, I've done, I've done it again. Uh, There's, there's, clearly at least somewhat of an inkling of remorse you know what i'm saying now not that it not that it yeah yeah. not that it makes it forgivable it's still murder of course and and uh very manipulative murder at that
1: yeah in a way it kind of makes it creepier just because of how detached he is while he's doing it um which obviously kind of speaks to how uh filmmakers are kind of by nature have to be sort of detached from whatever they are filming to a certain yeah. extent. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you're not going around doing what Mark Lewis is doing.
0: I hope not. <laughs> my goodness. Yes. Yeah. That would be, that would be, that would be a, a, an object of concern, I would say. But yeah, that is, that is something that's really kind of, kind of lingering under the surface is, uh, w- which is unusual because at least to my knowledge, that's not, Really like like a uh, auturistic theme throughout Michael Powell's earlier work, but maybe that was maybe that was Pressburger reining him in. So who knows? Maybe maybe uh,
1: <laughs> yeah maybe maybe
0: Michael Powell has has a uh, has a lot of very interesting ideas. And yeah, it is very confrontational about the way that the way that movies sort of obfuscate reality in a way that's designed to. Entertain, And it's not like there's anything especially demonic about that. Like I want to make that clear. It's not, um, it's not, Yeah, we're not safe. saying
1: that we're all evil for watching movies.
0: <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think the movie is either. I, but I think there is this very clear sort of, what's the word objection, or maybe just an attempt to point out how, like, this is all like really fake and stuff. Uh, and I think there's may, maybe, maybe, maybe that can get like, it can get a little, uh, it can get a little out of hand sometimes, uh, especially with this, with this maniacal obsession. Like one of those, one of the things we see Mark doing throughout the movie is just sort of rewatching the stuffy films as if through some great, like compelling, like some, some godly compulsion that he feels to just relive it uh, for all mm-hmm. of its horror. And there's something, there's something just so something just so fascinating about that. And I, 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 of course I'm, of course I loved it the first time, but I, I just wish I had had more time to reflect further on it. I want to know, I have, I have a few other things, but is, is there anything else? Uh, cause I feel like we're kind of, we kind of got to some good stuff and we're not going to give away the ending to this one. I don't think, but, uh, is, is there any, uh, uh anything else that, uh, you wanted to make note about in, peeping Tom?
1: I would just say also I think it is an interesting layer to uh, Mark's character that he feels the need to have to film the people while he's doing this and then um, he obviously always has those films now of his victims forever which he can also obsessively rewatch like he does his old home videos Um, I think it kind of gets to the idea of trying to find, even if it's like a really wrong way to go about it, uh, trying to find some type of like, uh, common, uh, shared pain, uh, Mm -hmm. between him and other people, um, which I think is part of what psychologically is driving him to do these things, even if he's not consciously aware of it. Um, which just kind of adds another interesting layer to his character, um, and makes you kind of, reflect more on how he's probably not a terrible person at heart. He just doesn't know how to deal with these things um, from when he was abused by his father as a kid. So it actually ends up kind of being tragic by the end.
0: Yeah, it is. It is a real tragic uh, story when it's all said and done. Uh, And that was something that was something I was very surprised by. I was not I was not expecting it to be that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that really differentiates it from a lot of the movies that it inspired even. So that was really fascinating to see. Uh, One thing I do, I I did find somewhat amusing is that there uh, he's he has this big like eight millimeter camera it was it was 1960 they didn't have like the little camcorders and stuff that we have now so uh, having to like the idea that he's able to somehow hide it like in a big overcoat which granted it's a it's a huge coat you could probably hide some stuff under there but even still it's this huge bulky thing that a lot of people just, as we see those POV shots, doesn't don't really notice it first, and especially with the tripod and everything. I just found that amusing, and I would like to see j- the the <clears throat> act of actually concealing the camera itself. Because now you think about it, you could just slip like a smartphone into your uh, shirt pocket, and no one thinks twice about it. So that was somewhat yeah. amusing, but I'm perfectly perfectly willing to uh, suspend my disbelief on that one.
1: Yeah. And I think the movie even kind of acknowledges that at one point when uh, he's about to go on a date with Helen and right before they leave, she says, like, when's the last time you went out without carrying around the camera? Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, I can't remember.
0: (laughs) And I think and and it's a sign of great trust that she actually convinces him, like, why don't you just leave it here? And he's like, you know what? I will. Yeah, I will do that. So that was I, I, I thought that was a good moment to throw in there. And yeah, it's this, it's this fascinating character. There are, there are a lot of, a lot of things to touch on with this movie. Of course, we're only just scratching the surface as always, but there's, there, there are a lot of, a lot of really great analyses of this movie and the way that, the way that it just sort of takes the, uh, what's, what's the word the the practice, the art form, so to speak of cinema and takes it to sort of an irrational extreme, And just shows like, yeah, this art form is is great and helpful and everything, uh, and creates lots of jobs and provides lots of artistic opportunity. But also, there's a lot. It can lead you
1: down a dark path.
0: (laughs) There's a lot sort of lingering under the surface. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's there can be a lot of a lot of evil, and I think this movie just just goes full bore. Like, what does what would that evil look like uh someone who just who just does anything they can at all to seek some sort of comfort within this uh within this strange within this strange practice we've all gotten so used to at the time and this is uh it it reminded me of uh, another movie It reminded me of was breathless again which i I keep bringing up (laughs) uh just the way that it also is sort of really opening openly acknowledging the existence of film as an art form. Now it's not as like idiosyncratic uh, as breathless or anything. It's not acknowledging specific works within the art form, but just sort of the idea of it. It wasn't something you saw acknowledge all the time before that. So uh, I can see uh, while I while I do watch it and and say like okay it's not that extreme by today's standards I can see how sort of the confrontational aspect of it all might have been might have been a little uh, a little off putting to some yeah a little a little hard to swallow perhaps it could have been a variety of things but I think it's good that we uh, we that that uh, we get to enjoy it now and indeed it has become quite a classic over the years so it just goes to show once again that uh that anything is possible with the with the miracle of time
1: (laughs) yeah i would say by by today's standards it's not really a scary movie um Mm -hmm. but yeah like you alluded to there is a lot going on that you can pick up in the subtext that makes it far more disturbing than i think maybe even Michael Powell was even aware of while he was making it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I would, I would, I, uh, I I wish I'd looked up some interviews about it before, but yeah, no, Michael Powell was very, uh, was from what I was able to gather was very resentful that this movie got the, uh, reaction that it did and was especially critical of, kind of how hypocritical that all turned out to be even just a decade later saying like oh it's the most mm-hmm. repulsive thing in the 60s and it's the 70s it's fantastic so uh i can <laughs> i can clearly see i could definitely see where that uh resentment would have come from so uh it's yeah a damn probably change. just
1: one of those cases where it was a movie that was just too ahead of its time unfortunately for it
0: yeah, there are some movies like that. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. A movie too ahead of its time. That is Peeping Tom. The public just about,
1: wasn't ready for it.
0: They they just weren't ready for the glory, the greatness, and the truth of Peeping Tom. I think that's yeah. good, as good a place as any to leave off. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I had a wonderful time, and I hope I hope you had as much fun as I did.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Had a great time on here. Thank you very much for having me. And if you ever want to bring me back, you know, I'd always be up for that.
0: I'd absolutely love to. Uh, Is is there anything that, uh, that, that you want to plug besides your Letterboxd account, which we'll have linked in the show notes?
1: Uh no, I I don't have anything to plug. If you're on Letterboxd and want to follow me, uh feel free to do so. If not, that's totally fine too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I cannot I cannot encourage this enough. I love reading Andrew's reviews. He's always watching something interesting. I really dig it a lot. Uh and of course uh, I'm on thank there you as Sam. well. Of course, of course. Yes. You're, you're 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 a very knowledgeable fellow. And so I like to uh, even when I vehemently disagree, which happens more often than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I'm always, i always a fan. So that is a good place to find what Andrew's up to. And of course, I'm always on Letterboxd. Uh, and I think that just about does it for our show. Uh, and so we will sign off from, a, uh, from a, a lonely hotel room in Barcelona. I am Sam.
1: And I'm Andrew.
0: And we'll see you next time.